Father, in these times, looking at a passage, really a verse like this, that seems so simple, Lord, I pray that you would press deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would bring to mind ways in which we are missing out on the abundant life that you offer. Lord, let us not be afraid to dig deeper because, Lord, what we want is for you to search every bit of our heart, that you would find any unclean or unrighteous way in us, that we may confess and repent and turn and be healed, be forgiven and restored and renewed, that we might live the life that you are calling us to, that we may lay hold of the kingdom. Help us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, is really what we're going to be in there. We'll go a little bit into 13 and 14, but, but mostly verse 12. So many times during... This series, we have said, we've introed ones of saying, this is probably a very common, well-known verse. Like even people who um, don't grow up in the church or haven't grown up in the church or don't know the Bible well would probably know this verse. And we've done that multiple times. Christoph, a couple weeks ago, so recently with the um, do not judge, lest you be judged, that that is often quoted. But I don't know that there is a verse that is more familiar to the culture than this one today. This may, this may take the prize. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It is the golden rule. It's the golden rule, which people all over our culture, regardless of faith, will claim some form of this. What could possibly be simpler? Now, this verse is is often seen as kind of the conclusion of the big section that spans um, a lot of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, all the way up until now. So, so often um, the, the Sermon on the Mount is characterized as first Jesus is talking about the kingdom and setting the stage for that. But then he goes in, um, starting in in chapter 5, verse 17, he starts talking about the law and clarifying and and deepening their understanding of the law. And so he goes in, that's when we went through as he talked about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies and how to give and how to pray and how to fast and the treasure that awaits those who, who belong to the kingdom and why we shouldn't worry, and not to judge, and the importance of asking him with persistence, all summed up as he's clarifying the law and deepening their understanding and teaching it. He sums it up with, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, of course, he'll say this later again in in other ways, Most famously in the great commandment when the Pharisees asked him what's the greatest commandment in the law and he said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In a sense, that's summarizing his Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about the king and the kingdom and God and who he is and his nature, and then how we are to live in light of of who he is and what he has done in our lives. You know, one common worldly take on this and that has kind of infiltrated the church is that Jesus is, is reducing the law. That he's saying, listen, all that stuff that came before, don't worry about any of that. Just focus on being good to others. What could possibly be less offensive, more agreeable than that? Just, just be good to others. But that isn't what he's doing. And we know it's not what he's doing because the beginning of this whole section in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see from passages like that that he's not reducing the law. He's not saying, hey, don't worry about any of that. Just just focus on this one. This This one's good enough. Instead, he's giving the true essence of all the commands of God. He's talking about the root of what everything else should be interpreted and understood through. Instead of saying, don't worry about the rest of it, he's saying, if what you are doing in order to obey God is not loving your neighbor as yourself, then you are not obeying God. He's not reducing, he's giving the essence And it is interesting that many religions have some version of this, though one slight interesting twist on it is Jesus gives a positive command on it. Often when it's phrased in other um, religions, it's, it's the negative side of it. So what you hate, what you would not want somebody to do to you, don't do to others. That's the inverse of it. So, so for example, if you would not want something stolen from your house, well, don't do that to other people. If you don't want to be physically harmed by someone, then don't physically harm others. And, and that is true, but Jesus gives the, the positive side of it. And he says, what you would want someone to do to you, do that for others. One is avoiding doing bad things. The other is seeking to do good. And it is one of the marks of the teachings of Jesus that differentiates it. That there are many religions and philosophies that basically say, hey, just, just avoid doing harm to other people and, and be good to those who are close to you and just kind of live, go about your life. But Jesus is the one who says, no, go, basically go into the lion's den and do good. Respond to evil with good. But even still, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody in our culture who would get into an argument with you over the golden rule. Because it's just so simple. 
so basic, such common sense. I mean, even non-Christians teach their kids this rule. What could be more biblical and more American than the golden rule? But then it's interesting that Jesus says this right after it. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now we'll talk about this passage more in a, in a couple of weeks when we wrap up this whole series. But it is interesting that it comes right after the golden rule. If the golden rule is so simple, and that it is the essence of everything Jesus is teaching, then why is the gate so hard to find? If what Jesus is saying is such common sense and so obvious, then why do so few people understand it or find it? Now, some of you would say, well, that's because there's so little common sense in the world. And it's frustrating. Well, if that's the case, if common sense is rare, then it's not very common, is it? Right? Like, we talk about common sense as if, like, well, everybody understands this. And then we go to lament that no one understands what everybody understands. It gets a little confusing, right? But the reality is that it's not actually common sense. Because we have to ask ourselves, well, common to whom? And makes sense to whom? And if it's such common sense, even to us, even if we would sit here and say, well, yeah, the whole world has lost their marbles, but we've got it. We still understand this. This is still basic Christianity 101, and we all have this. If that is true, if it is such common sense to us here, just us in this room, why are we so bad at it? Let me ask you, have you ever, have you ever been misquoted? Misunderstood? Anyone ever get upset with you? And you're sure like the problem is that they don't understand what you were trying to communicate? And they are so confident that they understand you that it's really frustrating. Anybody been in that situation? Have you ever been upset with someone else because you're sure you know what they meant by what they said? That you understand, you don't need any more explanation because you know what their motives were, you know why they said that, you know what they were thinking? See, we're hypocritical in it. Have you ever wanted to keep something private? You didn't want anybody else to know, but then have been offended when somebody didn't tell you something you think you should have known? Have you ever made a mistake while driving, pulled up to a stop sign and looked and then started to pull out and started to pull out in front of someone because you missed them? Or driving through town and you just all of a sudden look down and realize that you're going a little too fast and thought like, oops, hey, that's, 
But that's, that's rare. And you're looking around hoping that there's not an officer who just saw that. I think we've all been there. But then what's your response when somebody else does that? And starts to pull out in front of you when you're going along or starts to change lanes and you're in that lane and they don't see you. Or they're going too fast through your neighborhood. Where's the cop? Why aren't they here? Those are the kinds of people that should not have their driver's license. The reality is that we often find ourselves in a situation where there is no excuse for others, but lots of excuses for me. No justification for others. Lots of justification for me. Justice for others. Mercy for me. For others, their actions reveal exactly who they are. But for us, we say, oh, that bad thing I did, that's not who I am. See, far from being common sense, it turns out it may be the most difficult thing that Jesus says to actually put into action. Treating others the way you would want to be treated. I mean, you can spend all of about 12.8 seconds on social media and see this example over and over and over again. Why is it so hard? Like, it's so simple. Just imagine, what, what would you want someone to do for you in that situation? How would you want them to treat you in that situation? And then do that. If it's so simple, why is it so hard? Well, it's the same thing that keeps confronting us over and over again in this series and what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in order to follow it, we have to admit that we are not God. And this keeps coming up. And I know the response is, first of all, is going to be like, wait, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll show you. I'll try to show you. And most people, whenever that comes up, and when we've said it before, I've had a lot of people say like, well, I don't think I'm God. I know I'm not God. There's a difference between knowing something and knowing something. See, nothing is more readily admitted by people, especially those in the church, that we're not God, and yet nothing is so regularly on display quite like the fact that we think we are. And it's on display in this myth of common sense. If you've ever uttered, the, uttered that phrase, you're not alone, I have too. But you ever say, like, it's just common sense. Because we think we see perfectly while others don't. It's common sense. You ever at work thought about some decision that was made above you and think like, that's just, what a dumb decision that was. Why don't they just do this? It's just common sense. Right? We think we understand what others can't possibly understand. Because it's just common sense. What makes sense to us, we think is just common sense. We get upset about people thinking they know our motives while we are sure we know the motives of others. And when we sin, we think people who call us out are legalistic and judgmental. But when others sin and we call that out and they get upset, we think they're soft and wishy-washy and <gasps> liberal. And all those scenarios, 
offend our deep-seated belief that we are God. Like I mentioned last week, like we know we're children of God, but we like to think of ourselves as grown adult children who have most of it figured out and just maybe need a little bit of help here and there. None of us like to think of ourselves as 18-month-olds who aren't potty trained, who can't feed themselves, who can't take care of themselves, and are desperately dependent on our Father to take care of us at every turn. We don't like it. Because even if we know we're not the God, we think that we're like upper management. We can take care of our own world. Because after all, we, we know better. We see clearly. We understand fully. And we deserve to be honored. Why is this in our hearts? Well, in Ephesians 2, Paul paints a not-so-flattering picture of us apart from Christ. He says, You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the enemy, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, not just an 18-month-old, but an 18-month-old of wrath. Some of you may have an example of that and have fond or not-so-fond memories, or maybe this is your life right now. But that is what Paul is painting the picture of who we are. It's not very flattering, is it? What does that mean? Well, in essence... It means we pursue what we want. We rebel against the true king and try to establish our own many kingdoms where we get to rule, where people either do what makes sense to us, what is common sense to us, or they incur the wrath of our judgment, our dismissal, or our social media ire. And in our kingdoms, our little perverted kingdoms, the golden rule gets perverted and it turns into treat others as they have treated you. Or treat others the way they deserve to be treated. It's just common sense. And in so doing, we declare ourselves the just judge of the world. We declare ourselves God. So it turns out common sense of man leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The reason the way that seems right to man leads to destruction is simple. We're not God. We are not just. We are not good. We are, by nature, children of wrath, seeking our own good. And at the very minimum, we are finite. We will always overestimate our ability to understand, our ability to see, our ability to control. So like a small child, what seems right to us, what seems like common sense to us, is not always reality. 
And it's this mindset that allows us or a person to, with a clear conscience, judge the sins of the world while they cause destruction in the church through gossip and division. It's what allows us to genuinely think that the propaganda that we are spreading on Facebook is truth, while the other side is so blinded by the propaganda that they're spreading. Because it's just quick, it's just common sense. It's what allows us to gossip about those who gossip. We make the joke whenever we talk about gossip People sitting there going like, well, I don't really struggle with gossip, but you know who does? Like the reason that hits is because it pops into our head. I'm going to throw off my microphone here. Right? This is what allows us to gossip about those who gossip, to judge those who judge. You realize how hypocritical it is to be like, "Ah, I hate judgmental people. They're the worst. Come on. It's what allows us to get mad at people who are in a hurry when we are taking our time and mad at those taking their time when we are in a hurry because it just makes sense to us. It's the way the world should work. And we are offended when people treat us the way that we treat others. See, the simple part is asking, how would you want to be treated? And the hard part is acknowledging that you are not the exception and to truly treat others in that way. So now I know, because I've been doing this long enough, I'm going to guess motives and guess stuff, that this is is great. There's a certain percentage in in here who have just, like, tuned me out. That's not really any different than most Sundays. I'm used to it. I can tell. But here's what I would encourage you for those who are still with me. I'm with you in this. I fight this all the time in my own heart. I struggled with it a lot this week. And what I can tell you is that we will never find life as long as we put up the defenses around our hearts so quickly and just say, well, I don't do that. That's not my situation. There's no freedom found there in self-justification and self-defense. There's freedom found in, Lord, search my heart and show if there is any way that is unrighteous in me. Give me a clean heart. Get it out of me. I want that sin anywhere that it is hiding in my heart. I want it gone. so if you are in that point where you're saying, yeah, I do that, then the question is, well, then what hope do we have? If we are by nature children of wrath, where is our hope? Let me ask you, congregation, if we are by nature children of wrath, where is our hope? Jesus. Jesus. Sunday School 101. Jesus is our hope. We look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who lived the life that we could not live. That when we want to know, what does that look like? What does it look like to treat others the way you want to be treated? Who obeys that perfectly? Jesus. And here's what we see in him. Ask yourself the question, 
Because a lot of times the defense comes up and they say, well, if people didn't do wrong things, I wouldn't be so judgmental. Well, who is more fit to judge than Jesus? And yet, he says, I did not come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through me. Who is more about the truth? Is anybody really going to stand before Jesus and say, well, Jesus, I just think I take truth more seriously than you? It's probably not going to go well. Nobody is more about the truth than the one who is the truth. And yet, he did not take moral stands everywhere he went. He did not judge those that he came into contact with. Who dealt with more false accusations, suffered more foolish debates, and had more eye-rolling moments than Jesus? Like whatever happens in your workplace on a daily basis has nothing on Jesus walking around just normal people every day. Constantly. And yet, he looked upon the crowds with compassion. Simply put, he treated others the way he wanted to be treated. And at the end of his life, only a handful reciprocated that. And what was his response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, the only one who actually had the ability to judge motives perfectly didn't judge them. He gently and with compassion called them to something greater. How was he able to do that? Well, one big idea, there's lots of ways, but one thing I just want to point out is consistently in the ministry of Jesus, we see this. He sees people while everyone else sees issues. Jesus sees people while everybody else sees issues. Jesus sees the man who has leprosy while everyone else is freaking out about the leprosy. Jesus sees the woman who is caught in adultery while everyone else is consumed with the adultery. Jesus saw the heart of the Pharisees while everyone else was concerned about the external actions of the Pharisees. See, Jesus understood the people he ministered to. He did not condemn them. He understood why the woman at the well was at the well in the middle of the day. He knew what the woman caught in adultery had done He understood why Mary and Martha were lobbing accusations at him when their brother was dead because he saw people, not issues. And when he looks at you, he sees you, not your issues. He sees you, the one who is sick, the one who is gripped by sin, and he offers healing. And he offers forgiveness because he sees you. He's not fixated on the sin. He's fixated on you. And the only ones who do not receive it are the ones who cannot see that in themselves. He sees what you truly fear 
and then he calms the storm to reach you. He sees what you desire, and he offers you abundant life. He doesn't come to the earth and say, like, he didn't start his ministry and be like, all right, the problem with this place is all the rampant sexual immorality and all the dishonesty going on here. We don't ever see that. That's not Sermon on the Mount Part 2, where he just vents to all of his disciples. We never see that. There is all of that, and then some. And yet Jesus went around and ministered to people, declaring the kingdom of God and calling them to turn and repent and lay hold to the kingdom. And so that's the call to us, is to turn and repent. That we have forsaken even the essence of the entire law, where we have failed to treat others the way we would want to be treated. We need to repent. Or do you think that you are more just than God, that you would judge those that God calls us to love? Or do you think you are more loving than God, that you would refrain from being truthful? That you can edit scripture because you know what it means to be loving in this culture more than God does? Or do you think that you are holier than God, that you would look down on others in their sin and think, well, I would never do that? See, this is what Jesus has done for you. He sees you and offers life and healing and forgiveness. And what he has done in you, he wants to do through you. That is who we are called to be in the power of the Spirit. As we have received that kind of love, so we are to love others. And so my encouragement to you is to follow Jesus in that and see people, not issues. One of the ways that I know that the culture here has shifted considerably is I get fewer questions about the right stance about particular issues and far more questions about how to love people well and to love them in spirit and in truth just like we love our Father in spirit and in truth. So I get questions like, how do I love my niece who has come out as gay? How do I love my family members that always want to argue about politics? How do I love my coworker whose life is being destroyed by alcoholism? Because the issue is never the issue. We get so consumed by issues and it's not the issue. The issue is people. The person that is right in front of you. That's how Jesus functioned and it's how we are to function if we are going to be followers of Jesus. I've said this before, but if I could magically make something disappear, it would be the pressure that we often feel about like, well, I don't want to come off as though I'm condoning the sin. And I just would challenge you to read the Gospels and see, does Jesus ever seem concerned about that? And if not, then you have to ask the question, do you think that you take sin more seriously than Jesus? Do you think that you know better what it means to be loving and to speak truth than Jesus? I don't. Like, don't be afraid. Loving someone is not the same thing as condoning everything they do. Being kind to someone is not the same thing as condoning sin. I mean, think about this. If Jesus was most concerned that being kind and loving and compassionate was going to condone sin, 
then he would never be kind and compassionate because he was constantly surrounded by sin. Constantly. Like, he would have constantly started with conversations with, okay, I'm going to give you some hope here, but let's just be really clear. I do not approve of what you're doing over here at all right now. And I heard what you said to your buddy over there. That wasn't good. Also, the way that you're treating your wife right now, not great. Not happy about that. The way that you, like, cut that person off on the road, like, I don't approve of that either. In fact, here's a whole list of things. I just want to make sure that we're clear on the same page of things I do not condone in your life. Okay, now, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. No, he didn't do that. He is constantly looking at the person. So when you see people, you might say like, okay, I want to see the person and not the issue that's going on. When you see them, dig deeper and see root desires and fears, not just exterior symptoms. See, we often struggle in relating to people because we're trying to relate to the exterior symptoms and we may not be there with them. For example, you may struggle with the, like, the coworker who's struggling with alcoholism. Maybe you've never had a drink. Maybe you've never been tempted by that. Maybe that's never been a struggle for you. And so you don't understand the pull of going to the bar on the weekend. But you do know what it's like to feel lonely and to desire community and to be accepted for who you are. And maybe that's what's being drawn. And so you can relate to the draw. Or maybe you can't relate, like right now, with the issues of gender and sexuality and people are just struggling in the church. Like, how do we deal with this? Maybe you can't relate to not feeling at home in the gender that God created you as. And that seems very confusing to you and you just don't understand it. But, but you can relate to the struggle of trying to figure out who you are. I've never known a person who hasn't struggled with their identity and knowing who they are, and what if God made a mistake when he made me? You can relate to not seeing the beauty and the intentionality of how you were created, and that it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't haphazard, and he knows full well why, why he made you the way he made you, and so you can trust him. You know that struggle. When we see people, not issues, then we start to learn what it means to love somebody because that's how we want to be viewed. Which one of us in this room wants to be judged or labeled by the issues and the things we struggle with? Anybody? Or do you want to be seen and understood through that? Do you want someone that loves you enough to offer you hope and to get in the trenches with you and to say, I'm gonna, I see past all those things, and I see you. That's what we want. So think, what does that look like? Think about, what would you want? If you were in sin, and you didn't realize it, how would you want to be approached? There's a spiritual blind spot to you. You just didn't even know. You didn't even know that you were walking in sin in this area. How would you want to be approached? My guess is, 
patiently in the context of relationship, being given the benefit of the doubt that you, that you want to pursue Jesus, that you're just blind, you just were missing this over here. Someone who would seek to understand you. I've said it before, I've used this was a long time ago, so probably a lot in here haven't heard this, but when we were planting house churches in Colorado, um, I used to be known for kind of a, a, a biting wit, a little bit of sarcasm. No more, right? Okay. Um, you're all looking at me like, you used to be known for that? I was, you know, and, um, and we were leading a house church meeting, and I don't remember exactly what was going on, but what I do remember is that my wife, Lauren, said something in the meeting, and it kind of was derailing the point that I was trying to make. And I kind, of, I kind of made some sarcastic joke. It was kind of a biting, sarcastic remark. Funny, mind you, but not, not loving. And I said it, and everybody just kind of like, ah, you know, whatever. After everybody left, one of the guys that was newer in the church stayed back, and he said, hey, I, I know you as a pretty loving guy, that thing that you said to your wife, it made me really uncomfortable. And I just wanted to let you know that. And I remember thinking, like, even in that moment, by the grace of God, I heard him. And what I heard was him saying, listen, I know that's not who you want to be. I know you probably didn't even notice that this came off this way but like, I need to bring this to your attention. And I felt loved in that moment. I felt understood. I felt like he, he like cared about me. He didn't call me out in front of everybody. He didn't just say like, well, I will not, I am not coming to this house church anymore because I refuse to be a part of this where the pastor would do something like that. He gently called me to repent. He rebuked me. And by the grace of God, I received that and was so overcome with gratitude that he would call me out on that. That's how I want to be called out on sin. So that's how I want to call other people out on sin. Because I don't want to see them get destroyed. You know, how do you want to be called out? When you've, when you've said something to offend somebody and you didn't mean to, how would you want to be called out? Well, then do that for them when they say something that offends you or hurts you or that maybe they didn't understand why it was a problem and say something to them, but do so with gentleness, with a desire for reconciliation, a desire for forgiveness. How would you want to be approached if someone misunderstood something you said? How would you want to be approached if somebody, if you needed help and you knew it was an inconvenience to others? How would you want to be approached if it was your first time at church. And listen, I know that sometimes the, the response is like, well, I tried that and it doesn't work. You know, I feel like I'm treating them the way I want to be treated, but they are not reciprocating. And I would just point back to Jesus for whom that was the norm. And it did not change at all how he responded to people and it shouldn't change us either because we don't do it because of how we will be treated. We do it to glorify our Father in heaven. 
so we give grace upon grace because our Father has given us grace upon grace. If you treat the golden rule as a way to get what you want, if your focus is on how people are treating you in it, then you've already violated it. We love others because God first loved us. Which, by the way, we often think is we love God because he first loved us, which is true. But John is talking about how we love others. He says we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. (coughs) For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So ultimately, we demonstrate our love and worship of God and our surrender to him and our worship of him as the true God by treating others the way we would want to be treated, regardless of their response. That demonstrates that he is our God and that we are not. So imagine, imagine what it would look like. Imagine if we all here in this room treated each other the way we want to be treated. In the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, not as long as it makes sense to us, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we don't want to do it, that we turned and repented and asked for help in the Spirit to treat others the way we would want to be treated. Imagine if we did that. How much more abundant life would we experience? And it would take effort. It would take confronting our own flesh. It would take heeding the words of James. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That means it would take slowing down and considering, what if I don't actually understand exactly what's happened here? What if I don't actually remember correctly what was said? What if I don't actually know the motives of the other person? What if their life isn't so simple and so clear-cut and so common sense? And if I was there in their shoes, how would I want to be treated? This is the essence of the law of God. So do it in faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we need you to obey every piece of your word. And Lord, I am thankful for sayings like this, where you boil this all down to the essence that we are to love you and we demonstrate our love for you by how we love others. And the definition of loving others is that we treat people the way that we would want to be treated. God, let us do that. Forgive us for how we have failed to do that. But also, Lord, just meet us with overwhelming mercy and grace. That while we were sinners, you died for us. That you give us the faith that we need. That you have loved us the way that you've called us to love others. You've already done it for us. And all the ways that we have failed are put on the cross and we get to claim the righteousness of Jesus 
the author and the perfecter of our faith who fully and completely fulfilled the entire law through his life and then gave it to us through his death and his resurrection that we might live as we were called to live, as you created us to live. Help us so that others may see our good works and glorify you.